1: You know, I spend more and more of my time thinking about the word technology and various problems and dead ends it gets us into. Sometimes I'm of the opinion of historian David Edgerton that the best thing we could do is throw the word out altogether. Some of the worst of many bad roads we have gone down with technology exist in spaces of development and development economics. Too often, experts in development have fetishized technology as a solution to problems in poor countries. They have assumed that these poor countries will succeed only if their peoples live with technological systems and ways of being that resemble rich Western ones. And much of development thinking about this topic focuses on so-called labor-saving technologies, technologies that free people from so-called menial tasks or labors so that they can do other things with their time. Laura Ann Trujillo's book Embodied Engineering, Gendered Labor, Food Security, and Taste in 20th Century Mali challenges all of this. She shows that, first of all, Women in Mali contributed to innovation and technological systems in ways that development experts did not recognize. And second, women and also men in Mali do not look down on labor or value labor saving technologies as Westerners assume they will. Laura Ann's book is a wonderful examination of how people in different places and times also have different ways of thinking about and valuing the technologies in their lives. There are differences we should recognize and learn from. This is one of those interviews where we had some audio issues, and there are some problems we simply cannot edit out for all of our trying. But we still think the content is really interesting and worth sharing. I had a wonderful time talking to Laura Ann. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Get excited. Thanks uh, so much for taking the time to talk to me today.
0: Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here.
1: Embodied Engineering is is a neat book. So, you know, when you're in the kind of social situation where you're trying to give a brief elevator summation of what you were trying to do with it, what do you what do you tell strangers or newbies to your project uh, about your book?
0: Well, I think that I tell them, uh, first and foremost, that it's a book about uh, rural women in Mali as technological engineers, that too often African women are stereotyped as being in need of technology, right? Development programs yeah. often suggest that's the case. And through the book, I look at how, well, actually women have been innovators um, and engineering uh, food production in particular in uh, exciting, dynamic ways, and that has helped them really face some really significant ecological crises, including one that was the most devastating for the 20th century in West Africa, the Great Sahel Drought, and that we can actually learn a lot from uh, women in Mali and how they think about technology, um, not just for development in West Africa, uh, but for beyond how we think about women and technology, uh, domestic technologies in particular, uh, how that can be an arena of uh, innovation and creativity in ways that we never really would have imagined.
1: Mm-hmm, that's, that's great. Um, how did you come to write this book?
0: Well, I um, had been in Mali before going to graduate school, um, I was actually in the Peace Corps. This is something that I sometimes talk okay. to my students about. That uh, when you're there, you learn a lot about the program <laughs> and what it is. Yeah. um Peace Corps is a great way to learn about um, a place and the language, and it's a great diplomatic tool. And it set me up to really know a lot about women. And while I was there, um, I uh, actually observed women uh, working to produce shea butter, to cook on a daily basis, and was just taken aback by the creativity, the way that they work together. Uh, And so uh, one thing that happened in the field that was really exciting uh, was that um, I remembered having seen women um, clean their metal pots in a particular kind of way and interviewing women, I had never understood why, um, after you put a metal pot on the fire, do you do go through the, the trouble of cleaning off the, the blackened part of it? And so some of it was, you know, that's when I learned about this shift from clay pots to metal pots, how it was a really... Um, smart way to respond to deforestation problems under colonial rule, but that women decided they were gonna Mm -hmm. make these new pots theirs. They were shiny and new and exciting. They made different sounds. Uh, So it was something cool for women to have these new pots and that this was um, more than just about cooking. It was about women's identity, Uh, the meaning of labor. Mm -hmm. And having connected that to an earlier experience while I was in the field, suddenly I realized, oh, I'm writing a book that's not just about women at this particular development uh, program and labor. This is a history of women in technology. And that's kind of when it hit me wow, women are technological agents, I need to write about that. And not only that, they're engineering the rural countryside in a way that nobody has sort of really talked about in the history of the the region for the 20th century previously. And so that was one of those moments that hit me like, oh, I'm writing a history of technology, because I hadn't really been trained Mm -hmm. as a historian of technology, I was trained uh, to be a gender historian, and I was working in, uh, in, in Mali in West Africa. And then I thought, oh, this is about technology, I need to learn about that. And so I started investigating, talking to women more about the technology and couldn't believe what I was learning
1: that's so cool and did you have an inkling of I mean not the technology side so much but did you have an inkling of the topic you were going to write about when you went to grad school or was that something that kind of developed along the way
0: So when I went to grad school, um, I knew that I wanted to work on women, and I think I had figured out I was going to work on women in in Mali. Um, But before going to get my history degree, um, as an undergrad, I had studied literature. Uh, So I initially thought I was going to go to do Francophone West African literature. Um, But I thought, oh, I need history in order to understand the literature that I'm reading. So I did a master's degree where I didn't actually work on African women's history. And I thought, oh my gosh, history is it for me. So then when I went to Rutgers for my uh, for my PhD, I decided, no, I'm going to go and work on uh, women in West Africa and Mali that I know really well. Um, but at the time, I didn't really know that I was going to work on women in development. Uh, I didn't know that I was going to become a historian of technology and <laughs> how interesting it was mm-hmm. going to be to learn about the material culture of technology, a uh, gendered culture of technology and use. Um, So it was a real process sort of over time discovering uh, where we can really learn when we look at uh, women and what they're doing with modest technologies like pots uh, or, you know, I look at how cloth is and wrapping cloth can be a technique and a technology for surviving a food crisis that I hadn't really ever thought about before. Mm
1: hmm. Um and uh so what what did the research when you when you started going over and looking into this topic you have a very interesting blend of sources so like what what does the work look like as a historian of Mali and this topic
0: yeah, so uh, when I first got to, to Mali to do uh, the the dissertation that then became the book, I started in um, the archives, uh, the main archives in Mali and Bamako, the capital, and um, you know they ha- they had a you know series of files on this major project because it was the major project in the colony under the French uh, that was. Uh, Uh, officially started in the 1930s, but plans for it began as early as the 1920s for this big irrigated agricultural development program. And um, one of my advisors had said, you know, just start reading stuff that's of interest to you. So I started also reading some political reports. And, you know, very quickly, though, this was something I kind of knew having studied gender uh, history and other historians uh, who also had to go outside of the archives that, you know, I'm going to learn a lot about the project and sort of its apparatus and how officials thought about it. Um, I might learn some about men and their labor, but there was very little about women. And the same held when I got to Mm -hmm. the projects, um, sort of home base in SEGU, the administrative home base, where they also have an archive um, where I could learn a lot about, uh, there's a a botanist who studied food and taste and wrote a lot of interesting things that when he was supposed to be studying cotton, but he was learning about food and um, but still didn't write a lot about women. So, I had a lot of information around women, uh, but not quite. You know, in the archives, there are maybe three folders that mention specifically women at uh-huh. this project. <laughs> so, but I had always planned to do oral history. And, um, you know, I started setting up uh, different villages around the project, Um, so I stayed in specific uh, historical areas that had been uh, around the longest and then some of the newer ones, and I stayed there for several months at a time and, you know, interviewed women. Um, so participatory observation was also part of it, not just, uh, the interviews, uh, and I interviewed men and women. And a lot of times, you know, they were also storytelling, um, not just with, you know, words, but also their bodies explaining, uh, work, how they worked in fields or how they smuggled mm-hmm. and hid rice out of the fields. Um, when there was a, you know, a militarized, uh, crisis of control over the fields and they weren't able to take food out for themselves. Um, so, so. That um, was the first part of the research, Um, but, you know, the participant observation, watching how women actually cook, what's the technique, um, that was something that, you know, I also sort of took notes on. And when I returned, um, I went to the Schomburg Center in New York, uh, which is a fantastic library with amazing materials, not just for African-American and diaspora history. They have a lot of materials relating to West Africa. And I found these collections of African folktales that, I was realizing he spoke to so many of the questions that I had, and I, I started looking at them because I also had these travelers' narratives that t- talked about the region and the environment um, that I was, you know, yeah. I was interested in for the early period of the 20th century. And I thought, I don't want to use just their perspectives. I want, well, how can I get at other perspectives earlier than from, you know, even the oral histories that I was doing with older folks? And that's how I started using the, the folk tales. And so I end up using missionary reports, folk tales. I have, you know, archival sources from the project, um, participants observation. So I just, you know, look at all of it together. How does it speak, uh, to one another, Uh, stories that were circulating. Sometimes Mm -hmm. there were stories that people told me through, uh, through, through the interviews, um, thinking about how they're all speaking to each other. And that to me, um, was a way to get at questions where there's no, source that's going to get you that one answer. Um, And so there was a conversation uh, and that to me was actually really fun to think about how can I see my sources together where the botanist actually does record some information about uh, red millet. that was a famine food and then a woman tells me a story about it. And then it connects the archival source to women, what well, women are telling me in stories about um, those mm-hmm. sorts of things. And so when I found, you know, folktales about pots, I thought, oh my gosh, this is so exciting that I've this <laughs> new story about pots. Like they, yeah. they were thinking about these kinds of issues and that helps me frame it uh, for a period before, you know, before some of the women were born that I talked to.
1: That's neat. I thought it was a really rich and creative blend of different kinds of things and I love the way you use songs and and things like this to kind of get your, your points across. So your, your first chapter, your first chapter is titled um, making the generous cook pot. And it focuses on the period between 1890 in and 1920. So I just wonder like, why, why why'd you choose to um, start your story there? And what were you hoping to kind of get across as like the main kind of background element for the rest of the story that you wanted to tell
0: right yeah the core of the book really is about the period from when the the project is established like in the 1930s and it goes up to the 1980s in the midst of the great sahel drought and it's about how women are adapting and engineering their food their food production um system during that time period. And I thought, well, in order to really understand how they were adapting and innovating, I have to understand what it looked like for different women uh, prior to the period of the establishment of this project, because you can really see once they get to this new irrigated landscape where there's new villages, they've been displaced in the early uh, years of it, what they had in mind uh, for what they should have been able to do and how they adapted to that and then ended up engineering their food production system over several decades in different ways to you know respond to different crises so the first part is really understanding um, what it looked like before but also thinking about the cultural codes and understandings about food that continued to inform the way women thought about their food production labors and technology that it wasn't just about okay i'm going to make some food that people will eat but it was technology that helps me bring taste to food and cultural meaning yeah. and that helped me to understand how women were understood to be very central to rural life to the production of food but also you know to the production of you know animated life parties uh, festival food that that was something they were also hoping to bring to this project um aside yeah. from just you know surviving at this place that for the first decades was a really really tough place to live because it wasn't focused on food production it was focused on cash exports and they were able to turn Mm -hmm. it into something where people wanted to live and i had to understand the earlier period what women's goals were i mean it's you can't be romantic about the past there were also you know food crises in the earlier period but the aims of what they were seeking to do with you know when they're engineering food production that that helped me to understand what they were doing at the the this development project in the later decades
1: yeah one of the really nice themes that comes apart like comes through like from the very first page is that this um you know the cooking was a really central part of women's identity and pride and there's also this connection between like cooking and sexuality and like prowess in these things that i thought was really interesting so yeah i mean just say can you say a bit more about that just like you know because Um, Well, I mean, just to to add one thing, I mean, I was thinking about, you know, kind of rightly the way that, you know, second wave feminism and such has focused in the United States and Europe. It's been so focused on, you know, rightly focused on the women's role in the kind of the job, the industrial job system, really, right? And management and things like this, that I think that like... The The story you're telling really complicates kind of Western narratives of what what good looks like, you know, because for these women, like cooking and bringing taste and, you know, it's connected to all these other powers, like sexual powers and stuff in ways that I think are, it's kind of hard for Westerners to wrap, you know, like Americans to wrap our heads around and, and such. Yeah, so I don't know.
0: So, you know, this definitely comes from my training uh, in African history, understanding that the household itself can be a site of power. Um, You know, um, Mm -hmm. different rural households were based, like in the household, that was where the power center was. Um, But, you know, looking at food in particular, this was something, yes, there were gender divisions of labor, but in men's arenas, right, that uh, they were valued for their specific labor. But women um, gained... You know, status through their specific labor. And the thing that struck me as I continued to, to work on the book and think about the arguments was the way that women embodied and performed the value of their labor. So the opening song mm-hmm. in the book is something when I found it, I thought, oh, yes, uh, they're singing about how they make tasty food. And that it's, um, you know, it's, it's young women who are, um, you know, thinking about marriage, and they're showing off, In this song they're singing and showing off that they're the ones who make the best food um and it's also related to um you know a group of young women who are seeking to be alluring for men um that in a way connects to the idea that they're producing not just food for people to eat but, you know, social life. Um, so it's not only mm-hmm. about sexuality, but there's certainly uh, a lot to that. Right. Women are working yeah. for their husbands. And, you, you know, part of Allure is that you're making good food and tasty food. And it's hard to do that when there's a drought or you have food shortages. But women always tried to do that. And it was also a way that you Mm -hmm. could show your displeasure. Of course, if you um, were unhappy with someone, (laughs) you could show that through through the food. But also just the techniques of cooking, um, where you know pounding um, millet or other grains or other uh, ingredients in in a mortar and pestle is very loud and can be showy. And when women switch to metal pots, they they were able to make more of this public performance of, I am producing food, I'm producing rural life, and I'm important. Um, So, you know, because the the metal pots had a different sound and they were a bit louder, that's something I talk about quite a bit in the book that everybody remarked upon when women started using metal pots. Wow, you could really hear them cooking in addition to just pounding. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, so this is a way for women to remind everyone, look, we're surviving at this project because we are here. And not only that, we're making life great here in Some ways. Of course, there were always challenges, but it was that public performance, that reminder to maintain in everyone's minds that while there were challenges under colonial rule that increasingly reinforced male authority and status, that women were always also saying, no, 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 look at what we're doing. It's important. Um, and too, you know, too much of you know, sort of when development experts come in and they want to bring women technology didn't understand any of that way, that women knew that their work was valuable and knew that their labor was important Mm -hmm. and knew that they knew about technology um not only that they were ready to show people Um, And so that was fun for me to sort of examine the different ways that women were able to do that through their songs, through their actual embodied labor, uh, the way that they made it heard (laughs) throughout compounds in their village, when they were actually just doing cooking, that it was something that was on display Um, and, you know, showing off Mm -hmm. your metal pot and how shiny it was, was also a part of that. Like daily visual reminders, um, auditory reminders, right? It was sensorial in multiple ways, not just taste, but this whole world that women were creating, they were really at the center of it and all these sensorial ways that I found fascinating the more I did research Mm
1: -hmm. I want to talk more about the project and the impact it had on folks lives in a second but um I also I wanted to draw out something you've already started to touch on throughout the whole interview and that's just you know throughout the book you're you're kind of pushing on, pushing the boundaries on, even kind of redefining a kind of few common words that we hear a lot in the West and a lot around technology. I think that's especially true of the word engineering, but it's also true of, you know, the word technology itself in in some ways. So why is it, I think part of the work, the book is doing is trying to get us to look at women's work and creativity as engineering to kind of push back on tropes that are around in western development you know history so why are you kind of like you know stirring up that word and trying to push the boundaries on it what work are you trying to do there
0: Right. Thank you for that question. And um, it's something that certainly a lot of folks working in African STS are thinking about. Um, do we use terms from Western understandings of technology? How do we think about Africa in these conversations about about technology in ways that aren't about technological transfer? Someone brings something and then it um, comes to yeah. Africa. Because that really ignores the agency and technological innovation of uh, women—not just women—but I think um, as I started reading more about sort of uh, in sort of history of technology literature and thinking about different ways to understand um, women, uh, but other you know folks who aren't understood to be designers of technology, the conversation around users was really helpful for me to say, yeah, no, these women um, were. Engineers. It wasn't just women who happened to make pots that were technological agents, it was also the women who were using the pots were part of creating um, a whole way of making food that was involved in their labor uh, that had to do with their understanding of social life, their understanding of using mm-hmm. these technological objects and in, in innovative kinds of ways. And um, so when I was thinking about, do I use the word engineering, I had some conversations with folks. Um, I was at a seminar in, uh, at the Schomburg in New York, and one of my colleagues said, well, you know, aren't they engineering? And I thought, yeah, we really need mm-hmm. to expand how we're understanding these terms. Um, a lot of folks mm-hmm. in the history of technology and STS have done that for thinking about who are, uh, you know, designers, who are developers, who, who are um, the people who are, you know, creating technological sort of worlds. And I thought, yeah, they if, if I'm understanding that through their labor that is very much technological, they're creating the rural world that people are living in and they're redoing it. Mm -hmm. Um, whenever they face a kind of crisis. What is that if it's not engineering? Um, And so it's really about centering Africa in this conversation and saying what we can learn to help us really understand technology in different kinds of ways outside of these uh, sort of Western frameworks. Um, But also it was important for me to say that women are doing this because the trope mm-hmm. not only about africa is not just that africa is in need of technology but african women in particular are just without technology yeah. and that to me increasingly it was it's just so offensive to think about <laughs> especially after yeah. the work that i did that they are not technological um that in many yeah. ways and it's, to re-expand what, that it doesn't have to be a cell phone or something you know a computer program right. when I tell people that I work on the, on technology they think that I you know that I know something about designing designing a software yeah, yeah. And I say no no, no I'm working on pots <laughs> <laughs> you know there's you know some other folks who yeah. have been thinking about you know what you might call modest technologies but they're persistent yeah, right um, technologies. the mortar and pestle is one um, or grinding stones there's a reason that they persist and it's not just because women don't have other options There are grinders now for for grains, Um, but many women continue to use the mortar and pestle and value it for um, not just uh, the good food that it can provide, but the way that it allows women to showcase that they are the innovators and the users of these technologies, Um, but also because they're things that they can own, that they can call Mm -hmm. their own, that this is Women's things. Uh, there's a, a phrase that I, that I use in the book that's actually understood locally that things for cooking, items that women use, are understood as women's things. There's that's the translation. Uh. The word locally is that they're women's things, um, and that's you uh. know. So the, the word isn't necessarily technology, but it's gendered. And gendered in a way that showcases yeah. how women are important and that their labor is valuable and that they're important members of society. And that, to me, really helps us to understand not just the meaning of engineering and what technology is, but how it's gendered in lots of interesting ways by people who are using it um, and gendering, mm-hmm. gendering the technology to make a, a stake. Uh, on the fact that well we're technological agents because that's part of showcasing how women really are doing all of this improvisation and creative work uh, with different you know women's things.
1: That's wonderful. Um, the you know the, the second chapter and and for a couple chapters thereafter it focuses on the the office do Niger. Um, so can you. Um, uh oh it's probably office du niger i guess is what it is right <laughs> uh yeah my french was especially bad right there for a moment okay so uh what what can you sell tell us just tell listeners a bit about the the office du, Ni- du niger and uh its consequences for your story and how it affects food and, and the themes you want to follow
0: Yeah, so the Office du Niger uh, was a major development project um, when the French uh, were colonial rulers in French West Africa, and it was intended uh, to really revolutionize sort of agricultural, the agricultural colonial economy. They, They were really interested in cotton in particular because they wanted it to feed their textile industry. Um, And there had been some food crises in uh, the wider region, of course, much of that a consequence of colonial policies that undermined food production. But they had this idea that they were going to create an irrigated agricultural project that would uh, reimagine or uh, recreate what they thought were the the old course of the Niger River with its tributaries, um, that they thought through um, mismanagement the, the Africans, Sudanese in this region, had not you know, properly managed, and that's why there was a, it was a drought. So they needed to bring technology to rejuvenate this landscape, to produce cotton for French industry, and food that would be exported to Senegal. So it wasn't even meant to produce food uh, locally, necessarily. And so they really imagined it as this major technological project. They, uh, it was extremely costly, and it was also uh, very exploitative uh, and violent, uh, especially in its early decades. Um, the, when it was built, uh, a lot of forced labor was used, and they imagined that it would be a place where they would settle people who would then, you know, become, they would live in this new place. And uh, so people were displaced, families. So some of the very first women who arrived at the project just ran away. <laughs> it was a terrible place to live. They would arrive you know, after you know hours and days of walking, having been forced to go to this new place with only what they could carry with them. And women arrived on this landscape that was new, that was this irrigated landscape that wasn't like the irrigation that they had understood it with. Um, so sort of what the French imagined was a modern, sleek, technological landscape to you know, irrigate the Niger River and there there were very little, few trees, especially the trees that women used for food production. Uh, They weren't allotted Mm -hmm. food fields. There oftentimes weren't even houses built. They had to build it for themselves. So a lot of women just left. Um, And over time, uh, the women who did stay carved out spaces for themselves to produce food, right? On the edges of the rice fields, by the canals. Mm -hmm. They planted trees and sort of made the landscape something that would be productive. And that's how they really transformed it into a place that people could live. But earlier than that, mm-hmm. there were just, there were food crises with mostly men in households where there weren't enough women to produce food. They oftentimes were sending home to their home villages to get food, asking, send the women, please help us. <laughs> we need someone to help yeah. us produce food, cook for us. Um, and so those first decades were very difficult. Um, and it was only through women, uh, essentially, that it was made into a place that you could live. And then after that, mm-hmm. there. You know, so that's sort of the that that first chapter about sort of the the founding of the office. This place where the French thought our technology is going to modernize. Um, you know, for them they called it the the French Sudan. What that was the name of the colony that's now named you know, the country is now Mali, and they thought we're going to make a modern Sudan, and. Um, It wasn't through their technology that that happened. It was through the people who lived at the project, right? Of course, men who um, did uh, the farming work and had to learn new techniques had a lot to do with that as well, but they couldn't survive without women and they knew it. Um, and it was in the decades mm-hmm. after that, you know, when women started carving out spaces, learning how to work with some of the new technologies that they incorporated into their own routines, like the, the threshing machines, um, yeah. using the canals like they would river for water sources, that women made it a place where maybe people could live and then there could be some rural animation and they could feed people. And that's when yeah. uh, the project started to expand and more people were living there. They didn't always, you know, make money out of living there, of of course, the French were very much <laughs> yeah. wrong in a lot of their uh, their economic policy relating to crops from the project, but women made it a place where people could live and could have you mm-hmm. know a leisure time. You know they made beer for beer parties um and invited some office workers who were you know running the tractors to also join them um and you know so they made it a place that you know was you know there was some animation (laughs) where people uh, Mm -hmm. wanted to be versus a place that you might run away from
1: well i I really like how you talk about taste as like you know first of all the goal that you're the women wanted you know they're producing taste they had the power to produce these flavors but also how the you know the project affected taste the ability to make the foods they want to make it to uh at first so can you can you say a bit more about that like how did how did the project impact what was available in in ter- terms of taste making
0: yeah well so uh strikingly um it was a rice production. Uh, uh, that was the grain that was being produced if it wasn't going to be cotton. Uh, And there were certainly Mm -hmm. uh, farmers who ate local varieties of rice uh, in the region, but many of the the farmers and their families, um, women arrived knowing how to cook with millet. There were some who already knew how to cook with rice, Um, but for those who arrived um, and were used to using millet as the base for their meal preparation, had to learn how to make some of the same meals with rice Uh, and that was a a process, right? But they were very adamant that they were still going to make food that was good and held up to the same kind of standard. So there's a particular dish toe that I talk about quite a bit that was often, there was most often made with millet and it had a certain kind of texture, um, that women sought to recreate with rice toe when they made that. So this new ingredient, um, that was different. Uh, was something that that was part of their innovation that they're going to learn how to cook with rice, and so maybe there were some complaints. I, th- I talk about this in one of the chapters, oh, yeah. but they still said, "No, no, we're making tow, You better eat it <laughs> because this is still toe." <laughs> uh, and so that was one that really struck me when I started talking to women, learning, you know, and I said, well, how do you, you know, how did you learn how to cook? Uh, with rice. So there were sometimes women who had come from families um, that, that knew how to do that, and they would share that information, or you joined a family where women had already learned how to do it. So there's a senior woman who, who would teach you. You know, and there's certain you know hierarchies between women. So you had to master learning how to cook with the ingredients and make it tasty for everyone. Yeah. But the, the, the period that really stood out to me for thinking about taste was the Great Sahel Drought, um, mostly the 1980s, but it starts a little bit in the 1970s when there's this massive drought, there's some access to food aid. So even at this project where it's irrigated and they are producing rice, there was severe hunger. So they even sought out Mm -hmm. some of this food aid that was often red millet food aid, that locally red millet in many ways was understood as famine food and people Uh, understood the food that was coming in to be extremely poor quality just the way it was packaged that it hadn't been cleaned uh and it wasn't sort of familiar to them but not just the millet there was also you know canned fish things like that that was new to women and they had to figure out you know we're we're producing not just food to survive here food security means that it's something that's palatable that's not just to eat to survive and that came out in a lot of the interviews how do we transform millet if I make it into toe it looks like blood so they figured out something that they could put in it that would turn it a little bit different color so it was a little bit more palatable and they also figured out how to handle the canned goods that, you know, if they were lucky enough to get them, they could. But that was really salty and they had to figure out how do I put this in with my spices if I can find them or something so that the food isn't so terrible. Even though we are in the midst of extreme drought and they know that people, that there's famine outside of the office itself, especially further to the north, they know that people are hungry. Even in those crises, women aim To make something that people can eat, that they can stomach and that it's going to be, you know, as approaching as much as possible, something that people would want to eat. And that to me Mm -hmm. stood out as that's a real important lesson for thinking about um, food security. What does it actually mean? Um, Well, in many ways, it's assuring that women's labor is recognized as important. And that they are producing food that's not only just to healthy for you, because they were also concerned about that, but it's something that you would enjoy that could be used to animate yeah. social life, that it has more importance, and that food security means bringing all of that to the table, not just assuring their survival, which is basically what the, the food aid in that period um, was about. Things have changed in the the mm-hmm. world of uh, sort of thinking about food crises since then. Um, but, you know, women were the first ones to be thinking about, why are you sending me this food that I can't, that is, you know, people will cry really? if they eat it, is something that one of my interviewees <laughs> told me. Yeah. And I thought, like, that is so stark. <laughs> yeah. The way people talk really. about that particular moment really help me to understand the value of taste in all moments mm-hmm. no matter the the ecological situation or the access to food that you have it always has to be made to taste better
1: yeah well security is a is a it's a feeling too right it's an it's an emotional thing so if you're if you you know you might be eating and getting the raw calories or whatever that you need, but if, if there's not if there's an emotional disconnect with what you've got in front of you, it's hard to feel really secure, I would think. Yeah.
0: And building that social connection that brings that security, right? That that you know, so the food has to be mm-hmm. produced in a way that it helps to create those social bonds that do make people feel secure. Yeah.
1: Yeah. A big theme of of, of the book um that runs through it, and it's we've already touched on it a bit, is that western development minded individuals and organizations often obsess over productivity and labor save you know labor saving in quotation marks technologies and you know reducing the physical labor of women it's often like the target you know like this is like the big concern is we have to reduce this and yet you often you also show that this is not the focus of the women themselves like they they want things they and they you know there's things they want to improve but their own physical work is not is not the big focus right for them and and so you know what do you how do you how do you explain this kind of disconnect between like what what westerners think that people want and how the women understand their own lives and the value of their work
0: right well i think some of it is also understanding the value of physical labor that um, if if it's devalued, if women's physical labor is devalued in particular, then that's something that women have a problem with because they see that their labor is something through that brings them pride and status and is valuable. Mm-hmm. So of course, certainly, you know, sometimes they get tired, and when they're older, they want daughters-in-law to help out. But <laughs> showcasing that you can do this labor is not the problem. It's that mm. women's labor itself is not being valued, and that. Yeah. yeah. Development concerns that are only interested in bringing this machine. So women and and oftentimes those um, sort of experts aren't thinking that women won't do any labor. They're, they're, they're thinking is that they'll do cash making labor that somehow will right. you know, improve the diet. Well, women are already doing cash earning labor anyway. <laughs> but it also speaks to local cultural understandings that that value physical labor um of mm-hmm. course you know there's you know there's people who want to work in offices and do intellectual labor and that of course was also always valued right storytelling and the production of sort of intellectual understandings was valued but that didn't mean that physical labor was devalued and understandings yeah. sort of agriculture like the chiwara dance uh, that comes up in the first chapter about thinking about making the the, the generous co- cooking pot um there's there are agricultural rights and dances that were part of early the early 20th century rural world that celebrated men's physical labor, but also women's physical labor. And that mm-hmm. is something that I think they're pushing back strongly. Of course, you know, millet grinders, a lot of women now, are happy when they have access to it, if they're able to use it and they can pay for it. Um, and, you know, they then oftentimes will do other labor if that one is, you know, being, if that particular labor is saved for them. But that doesn't mean that they think women's work that is physical should be undervalued and that was something yeah. that was striking to me and you're right that tension between what um often circulates in development thinking and what planners were thinking about um often under the guise of calling it women's status understand th- that thinking mm-hmm. that women's labor somehow undermined their status well men also did physical labor that didn't necessarily undermine their status hunting is a very physical activity. Farming is a very physical activity. You know, all of the kinds of work that men did was physical and women too. And that labor was valued and bringing that forward into Mm -hmm. a a moment where, yeah, there might be some machines and technological objects that will make you more efficient and help you to do other labor. But that shouldn't in and of itself mean that physical labor is something you shouldn't do. Um, And so I think women's um, labor that where they're showing off their physical, you know, their prowess. Um, like women, when they're pounding millet and they throw the pestle up in the air and clap their hands and they're singing, they're showing off how they're good at that. The technique is good in in their labor. And I think that that's, um, that disconnect is something that is not just valuable for thinking about, um, you know regions outside of the united states or, or western europe that that's also something we need to understand and, and value a more, yeah. more here in the united states of course we don't want people to overwork themselves and to be so tired um but that doesn't mean that you don't value and remunerate physical labor and i think that women um who celebrate their physical labor have a lot to tell us about how we understand ethically the way we think about the world and what's valuable work and if it's you know, creative or not, physical labor can be inventive, creative, ingenious, and <laughs> there's mm-hmm. a lot of improvisation and can lead to real technological innovations in, in many ways. And I think this book helps us, my book <laughs> helps us to see that. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah, no, I was thinking about that a bit, you know, in connection to some of the stuff I read about in the Innovation Delusion with Andy Russell about maintenance and trade work and stuff like that. But also, and this might be a, a bit too abstract, but I I have a friend who, you know, is very worried about global climate change. And, you know, he, he's of the opinion that, you know, one thing that we'll eventually need to do if we're ever going to have significant change around this stuff is is, you know, kind of do more work actually in places where we've substitute energy use in for human labor or, or, you know, more human labor would be a good thing. And, you know, so I was telling him a bit about your book, cause it, it just was a, to me it was like an interesting case where the, like the work is understood as contributing to society and to the family and these things. And so it's kind of valued in it's in a, in a way that, you know, I think Western developments kind of, frameworks just can't see the value of it to those folks and how it fits into their kind of life world or something like that.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. Um, and, you know, thinking about uh, you know climate change and some of these other concerns that we have, I mean, in, in the late forties and fifties, women were dealing with deforestation that, um, came about in the area of the project because the colonial officials needed so much wood to fuel, you know, in the earliest machines, they were wood-powered. And women realized very early on that they needed a solution to the fact that they couldn't get, you know, fuel. So much of the book actually is a lot of women's sort of understandings of different ecological crises. The drought in the 1980s was another one. And their solutions were, you know, were modest but extremely effective in many ways and they um were show the sort of creative improvisation that isn't just substituting a kind of machine uh for something yeah um but you know work with what you have and um, valuing the kinds of modest technologies that women had always used that, um, you know, was able to produce sort of, sort of food security. So in many ways, you know, I was thinking, as I was writing the book, I really was thinking about um, what we can also learn from from their technological innovations and the ways that they adapted to their food crises—not that there isn't a crisis, or that women didn't—you know—they suffered under the Great Sahel drought from from hunger um, sure. and you know deforestation. Sure. You know, it, it definitely wasn't something that they wanted
1: <laughs> yeah. to,
0: to face. Um, but it was something that, you know, they're, they're already coming up with the solutions. And I think that's, um, part of it, but you write that, you know, the labor question is really interesting. Why, if we're not valuing sort of physical labor and we're always seeking that, you know, the energy input, um, that we're not really looking at the whole problem and thinking creatively in a way mm-hmm. that how, how, how do we approach this in a way that, um, you know, it offers a different kind of solution.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, you know, the the adoption of metal cooking pots um, does look like a kind of efficiency story on one hand, because you kind of you could use less wood to heat it up more quickly. And I'm sure, you know, that would be the Western development story of, of like this transition. But what did it mean to the women? who were making this transition like why did it make sense to them and you know like why did it fit into their their value scheme
0: yeah the key to that so this was like the second generation of women who had come to this project so they were coming to households where there were senior women they were you know wives that had just married in so they were quite young uh and new families uh and oftentimes far from where they had come from and you know they were seeking to make their stake in the family and say hey you know i have status and you, sh- you can you know i'm respectable and I'm, I'm doing my work that was an important part of it so i'm going to come and i'm going to do my cooking work and all the other household labor that i'm expected to do but when i bring this metal pot not only is it going to help me deal with the fact that i don't have to walk so far to get wood and i'm not going to use as much of it but it's also a way to showcase to them that i know what i'm doing and i'm part of this new generation and i'm going to set the terms of my labor in this family And so, showing off the metal pot was really important. Um, When they come, uh, when they arrived at the office, the parade that brought a new bride, those shiny metal pots were often showcased, and that was different from you know the generations of women that had been married before them because they had clay pots that didn't necessarily do that. So they arrived with these new pots that sometimes the senior women didn't know how to use, and they made their you know made their labor really visible in these new towns and new families where they were living because they made new noises, they were shiny, and they took care of those pots that, of course, it added extra mm. labor time to clean them, to keep them shiny, to show off. But it was worth it to showcase their, not just their value as women, but this new generation of women who were young, who wanted to, you know, to shape how their labor was going to, um, would be part of this new family, that it would be on their terms Mm -hmm. in many ways. And so they were, you know, I don't know if I want to use the word modern, but they were Coming and showing that they were responding to this new world and helping to shape it in ways that pushed back against hierarchies that they had to face of other women, right? There were, yeah, there's, it's not harmonious (laughs) in a family, especially with between mothers in law and daughters in law. And so for them, it wasn't just about efficiency and labor, it was making their claim, not just as women, but women in this new generation against, you know, some of the female hierarchies (laughs) that they had to face as, as new wives.
1: Yeah. That's cool. I love that. Hey, I just had a, a kind of curious question. This is not the theme of your book. Um, so, you know, I wasn't surprised that there wasn't a lot of it there. But I was the other thing that Western development folks um, focus on a lot is child labor is like a real obsession, you know, with like reducing the amount of child labor done. Done and blah 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 schooling and such. So I just wondered, like, how do kids kind of fit in the workflow? Like, are they are they part of the work scene? Um, you know, yeah.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, this is something I came across most often in relation to the cotton harvest, right? So this project, cotton was mm. one of the major mm. uh, crops, and rice was the other. Um, And in the the division of this project where cotton was grown, first of all, um, for the most in the early decades, this was the most impoverished area of the project because you were growing something you couldn't eat. Mm. And people who were in the rice division actually resisted um, even growing cotton. They, uh, you know, they rejected even the, the tools of it. But in that area where cotton was grown. This was also something that demanded a lot of women's labor because the the gendered division of labor um, usually meant that women were the ones who picked cotton. And it happened at a period of time where their labor was needed elsewhere for the harvest and for food security needs. Women um, needed to spend their labor in food production rather than cotton. And this was because of the kind of cotton Um, that they were promoting at the office. It wasn't a local variety that had, um, that, that the harvest was a different time than food, the food harvest Mm. or the, the major grain harvest. Women were making food all the time, but, um, so the, the timing was off. And so it augmented women's labor and children often helped women in the cotton harvest. So this, so more children had to help out, um, at the office because of that, um, intensification of labor around that time period but you know you know children uh grew up uh learning by their parents side um how to farm how to you know depending on you know if they were fishermen learning how to fish that sort of thing so it's part of education um and you know young girls grew up learning how to spin cotton thread and how to cook the millet (laughs) and make the sauces yeah yeah yeah. um in a way that was more like apprentice or or, or education. You know, there are other things that were educational yeah. as well. Um, so in terms of the the office and what people have written about it, it was, I mean, there was just too much. Le- the, the the early decades was exploitative for everyone, men, women, right. and children. And there were very few children at the office in the first decades because, you know, women yeah. who had young children were, of course, among the those who just ran away because they didn't want yeah, it yeah, for yeah. themselves or for the, their children but that is when it, it does appear sometimes in um not really mm-hmm. in the archives but you you know that the children were were part of that um saying, mm-hmm. yeah I don't know if That's that answers your
1: <laughs> No yeah totally I just was like you know I was just thinking through the family I was like where do the kids in that uh, um in the you know in the food picture I guess um but yeah that that totally does answer it so, what's next for you? What are you, what are, you, what are you working on now, and what have you turned your attention to? I know that this is this is a pretty recent book. This thing just came out not too long ago, so you definitely have a grace period. That's what I'm telling myself. Having had books come out, I'm chilling out for a second. But uh, yeah, what's next?
0: I do have a project that is continuing um, my discovered love of the history of technology, where I'm thinking about. Um, body politics and technology in the colonial encounter, um, but also sort of longer trajectory than that, how people are thinking about, um, well, let me start by saying I, before this book, I had an idea for my dissertation that was about baby weighing and the baby scale. And I decided to go with this particular project. So I'm going back to that. Um, And initially, the idea was understanding women's understandings of children and growth and weight and food um, and what the baby scale and the interaction around the scale changed. Right. Um, So this comes from my time in Mali before going to graduate school when I worked at the health center and I saw, you know, how baby weighing happened. It's public. uh, Yeah. uh, Women are there together. Public. Yeah. Yeah. So you're not alone in the room necessarily. I mean, you know, of course, I have to do a little bit. I have to go back and do some more research to see how, you know, if it looks different now uh, than than previously. So so that's one technological piece of it. Um, But uh, I also learned that uh, colonial census campaigns coincided with smallpox vaccinations. And so I'm looking at vaccination technologies. They were often quite coercive. So I have these two pieces of the colonial interest in population um, and what people made of it. But then I'm also interested. Well, how did people understand themselves? So I'm going to be looking at yeah um, town origin stories and how people understood mm. um, how they came together. Um, some of the things that came out in the in interviews when I was that I was doing for this book, people were often talking about um, people arrived um, when the water came because new villages were founded or the way they're they're thinking about what brings people yeah. together and why that matters um more than sort of counting in numbers um so it's a sort of vernacular demographic history where I'm piecing together um over the you know the 20th century again is going to be you know from the early 20th to the more recent um period how people are understanding the community health, because that's a lot of what baby weighing is about. That the individual baby's yeah. body somehow can tell you about the health of a community, whether depending on whether yeah. it hits the right yeah, yeah. way. That it too often is calibrated towards you know Western bodies of babies, rather than babies in, in Mali or or the French Sudan. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been doing some more work in missionary archives, um, and they they were doing their own kind of census of who was baptized. <laughs>
1: Yeah, right, right. <laughs> these competing, competing notions of communal health. Right, that the the Protestants have one measure and the development folks have another. And <laughs> yeah, okay.
0: Sisters who arrived uh, in 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 this region were some of the first to do baby weighing because they were interested in okay. clinics for maternal health. So I have some of their their records. So I'm trying to sort of piece together all these different stories about how do we understand. Um, communities, health people, and how is that evaluated and measured? And what does that change for Mm -hmm. local understandings when they're up against these technological body politics that are very much about how the colonial state and, um, are, you know the, if that happens under what happens under the post-colonial state I don't know how far I'll, I'll go with it um so that's what I'm thinking about uh, how do I sort of piece all of that together I've been looking at some information on orphanages as well that came out of some of the the, the missionary uh, Diaries um but so the next aim is for me to go to Molly again and do some more interviews thinking about sort of the found you know founding um, uh, founding tales and what people think about that um and how they you know how they, they have memories of vaccinations and uh, baby weighing and, and that that sort of thing so that's mm-hmm. where I'm, I'm moving with <laughs> with the, the next project so technology is still going to be very much at the center but in my own uh, eclectic way sort of like this book <laughs> yeah
1: that sounds super cool i really look forward to seeing that develop and what comes of it laura ann Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. This was a lot of fun.
0: Thanks for having me. I had I enjoyed it too.
1: I hope you enjoyed this episode of our podcast. Peoples and things like most things in this world depends on the work of many people. I want to thank my brother, Jake Vinsel, for writing the music for the show. I want to thank my buddy, Juliana Castro, for designing the logos for the podcast. You can check out her work at julianacastro.co. Peoples and Things is a production of Virginia Tech Publishing and the University Libraries at Virginia Tech. Production activities are supported by the Athenaeum, a space in the library that acts as a hub for digital humanities teaching, learning, and creation. Joe Ford is the Athenaeum Coordinator and Digital Humanities Specialist at VT Libraries, and he serves as producer and sound engineer for the podcast. For information about other podcasts from Virginia Tech Publishing, visit publishing.vt.edu. I also want to thank you
0: for listening. Thanks.